For three days only, save up to 30% off bestsellers from First Light, FHF Gear, Phelps Game Calls, and the Meat Eater Store. They'll also have for sale the Bear Grease Trucker Hats and Camo. They're included in this sale and all the great gear on First Light. Whether you're fishing, shed hunting, scouting, sighting in rifles, or cutting lanes, your gear needs to keep up with all your spring and summer pursuits. The sale has you covered. Hurry, the sale ends May 16th. Shop now at firstlight.com, F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E.com. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 148. Today in the show, Dan and I are covering a number of different topics, including talking a little turkey, discussing my recent cross-country public land adventures, and discussing some of the latest news related to the future of our public lands. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sick Gear. And today we're kind of talking about a whole slew of different things, including turkeys, my recent adventures and misadventures traveling across the country and exploring our nation's public lands. Uh, Speaking of, we're going to talk a little bit about the latest news related to the public land transfer movement. And who knows what else? It's just me and Dan today, so you just you just never know where things might go. So Dan, it's it's it's, it's been a while, dude. How are you? Oh man, I'm doing good. I'm Jack. Uh, like you said in the intro, I start my turkey vacation in about uh, three hours. I have one more meeting here at work, and then, uh, well, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> I, yeah. I, well, anyway, I, I'm I'm recording this over my lunch hour, right? So yeah. <laughs> I I have one or two more meetings, and then I'm out of here for I got Friday off, so I'm out of here. That's awesome, man. I uh, I'm excited to hear how it goes. So what's the plan? What's the game plan for Turkey Weekend? Well, I tell you, uh, when it comes to Turkey Weekend, it's all about for me now. It's transitioned from going and me trying to get a bird to basically just going and spending time with the family. Uh, my first goal is to straight up have as much fun as possible uh, to try to go and get my wife a bird first. So uh, I'll roll into town. I'll set up a blind uh, in a spot that has produced uh, for us several years now. Uh, it's pretty much if, if they fly down, they're going to be right there. And uh, if they cooperate and they come in even just like 10 yards, then my wife should have a shot. And then after that, if my stepdad hasn't tagged out, I'll, I'll probably go call for him. And then last but not least, uh, if there's time left, I'll go out and uh, bang, on, bang on a couple uh, public ground pieces near my house or uh, try to go to a different part of the farm that I hunt. So Nice, man. Are you going to get to take the kids out at all? No, um, they're my boy. He's definitely not ready for it yet, but I don't think my daughter is quite ready for it yet. It might be something that in next week after, you know, my turkey hunting is officially over. I might take a blind out and go sit in the field with her for a little bit, but she is a ball of energy. So that means (laughs) she doesn't sit still and she's not quiet. 
that's not conducive to good turkey hunting, is it? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so what's like this setup? I'm just kind of curious, you know, I got turkeys on the mind too. What's the yeah. setup in this spot that you think is, is so good historically from a turkey hunting perspective? Why is it so good? What makes it a good spot to set up? Well, typically what it, it's, I set up in the middle of a cat, a cattle pasture, right? So I get between the timber and basically this far fence row where the cattle are at. And I set my blind up in between, like right in the middle of this cattle pasture. So the, the turkeys typically do one of two things. They, they, they're currently roosting in a, let's see, uh, it's like a big woods open timber, right? It's not anything thick and nasty like you would think for deer hunting. It's on top of a ridge. It's wide open timber and big oak trees, lots of places for them to roost. And uh, they ro- that's where they roost. Now they either fly down in the timber and make their way out to what I, I don't know nothing I don't know any terminology. <laughs> I don't about, know nothing. <laughs> I don't know nothing. That's about all you have to say there. Like, <laughs> <laughs> about like turkey hunting technology or uh, terminology. Sure. But I guess I'm going to use the term strutting zone where. That the, sounds pretty legit. Their, I know, right? <laughs> they, they make their way out of the timber into a quote unquote strutting zone. And uh, it gives the opportunity for birds kind of like to gather, I guess, after they fly down. And then the toms usually follow the hens wherever they go. But so they'll fly down in the timber and make their way to this pasture, or they'll just pitch right out of the tree down into the uh, right into the pasture itself. And so last year, my blind was too far away. And so the next morning, we had to move it closer. And then we had a tom come in. My wife shot it in the face, but uh, <laughs> we, uh, but it's it's they do it. I've I've found this spot that they 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 do it every year. And if it, if you don't get them on them the first day, you can back out, come back there the next morning, and uh, do it again. And typically, if you make the right adjustments, we've just been lucky enough to where uh, the decoy setups have really provided us a good opportunity to call at them and then they come in and uh we get an opportunity what what's your decoy setup i can't remember what you usually use man it, it varies every year um so last two years i've used a jake and a hen uh and the i push the hen down as far as i can go i guess to simulate like she's ready to breed and then i put the jake right behind her and that gets the toms somewhat interested. I've never had a, a scenario that you see on TV where you have uh, like a tom just come full bore running into yeah. that setup. I've never had that. But they'll strut back and forth, and they'll strut back and forth, and they'll work their way slowly within shooting range. I try to keep the decoys uh, fairly close to the blind. And then that way they come in just a little bit and they don't seem to be spooked by the blind at all. But that's what I've used the past two years before I've, I've taken an old decoy, I've cut a slit in it and I've put a, a previous year's fan in it. I mean, it looks janky, but <laughs> it, but it works, man. That's awesome. Yeah. I, uh, the, I don't know how long now I, I've, 
use a lot of different setups, but I think what I've ended up using the most is a hen that I have angled down like she's feeding and then a strutting tom decoy. Um, And I've used that probably the most, but I've had a couple of years where I've had like some some toms get hung up outside of it and I pull that tom decoy next time I'm out there and just have the hen or maybe two hens out there and sometimes that works too. Um, It seems you almost need to like gauge the temperature of of the gobblers right around there at that time of year and see how aggressive they are or not and then that kind of helps me dictate whether i put the tom out there or not right but it's it's crazy because man iowa season like this is the first official weekend our our season opens on or what you would call first season here in iowa on this past Monday. Now, before that was a youth season, but I just feel like the turkey season is really late getting started. Um, I don't know if that's to allow the hens to breed before the hunters get a chance to go in after them, but the fact that uh, every year it seems like the, the toms are really hinned up by the time we get out there. So the only time... I shouldn't say the only time, but we definitely see a majority of our our success right off the roost in the morning, Uh, getting in, whether, you know, getting in either between the hens and the toms or, or finding a place like what we currently have set up where they pitch right down in front of us. Yeah. We've got that late season start time in Michigan too. Our season usually starts right around now. Um, I don't know what the opening day is this year since I'm not there right now, but I think last year was the 21st. It's probably somewhere around there right now. And um, I kind of found the same thing. It's like you either get them right right off the roost or I've also found like two hours, three hours after daylight, then you you get the hens kind of go off and do their thing, and then you kind of get those toms start kind of roaming again. The late morning, there's always like that late morning cruiser, almost like in the rut. So I always like there's that excitement right after they're coming down, and if it doesn't happen right then, then I know, okay, there's a couple hours here where it's probably going to be boring because at least where I'm set up, I can't get really close to um, to where they're roosting on my main Michigan property because that's all happening in the neighbors. So occasionally they roost closer and then it can happen but lots of times i hear them pitch down and they go the other direction and then i just have to wait 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 and finally like 10 o'clock or something they come rolling back through so yep ah, now everything everything i've kind of just said is how i approach it with my wife now let's say my wife tags out the next morning if i'm if i'm running solo i don't use a blind um i just because the turkey season is so short and I have a, you know, I have this dedicated family weekend. I'm probably, I typically use a gun, right? Um, just because of the time issue. So with a gun, it allows me to be a hundred percent mobile. I can, you know, stand up, sit down, walk 50 yards, call, walk 50 yards, call, walk 50. Okay. I just heard a gobble and then I make a move on them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, if they, if they come in, they come in, I'll try to, set my decoys up behind me and call. So if they see, you know, I, I, I locate the gobble, I put the decoys down and then I will walk maybe 20, 30 yards. The decoys are behind me. So they're focused on the decoys maybe and not me. Um, Cause I, over the years I've seen that there's times when the, the Tom will sit out there and strut just outside of range and 
and this is what I've heard from someone smarter than me. When a, when a com gobbles, it's a locator for the hens to come yeah. to the tom. Right. Right? So hunters, the way we approach it, we sit there and we call in hopes that the tom will come to us when in nature the toms gobble to get the hens to come to them. Right. We're asking them to go reverse. Exactly. Which is a tough sell. That's right. That is, uh, that's right. It's just almost like uh, like a bar, right? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> and, and and so it, we in the turkey world it would be like we would be at the bar and a guy would just like beat on his chest and women would come flocking to him yes something like that wouldn't that be nice no it wouldn't be mark because we're married men now <laughs> well i'm saying we back in the day back like that back in the day back in the day what a time machine <laughs> oh man yeah i'll tell you what i'm I'm excited to be doing the stuff I'm doing right now, but at the same time, I do miss the fact that I could be turkey hunting in Michigan right now because that is that is so much fun. I mean, we've talked about it before how much fun it is to be able to share it with you know your wife, your father-in-law. You know, I like to take my dad out, my buddies, and it's just a fun social hunt. And the weather's nice, and it's I love sitting out there early in the morning. The turkeys gobbling and by oh, us, yeah. there's also some pheasants crowing and the oh, birds yeah. are chirping and a few deer come strolling through. I mean, that's just a beautiful time to be in the woods. Amen. Now, my question is, where where are you at right now? So right now I am in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and I am recording okay. this in a co-working space in town that I got a little day pass for. So uh, cool. you and me both are kind of recording in different situations than usual. For sure. Um, do they have turkeys in Wyoming you can chase? So there are turkeys in Wyoming you can chase, but they're farther east than where I'm at right now, um, as I understand it. So I'm not turkey hunting here, but in about 10 days or so, I'm moving up to Montana, and I am going to do some turkey hunting in Montana. Um, there's a there's a lot of turkeys down in the southern part of the state, the southeast part of the state, I think, is where I'm going to head towards, and uh, lots of public land. And I'm actually going to try, I think I told you this, but I'm actually going to try with my bow this year. So, Oh, perfect. So I'm going to be in a brand new place on public land using a bow. So the chances of me killing a turkey are pretty slim, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> hey, you never know, man. Uh, turkeys can, There's. it's almost like, you know, turkey hunting is kind of like the rut. There's days it can be on and popping, and then there's days where it's just like, you sit in a blind for 10 hours and you, you hit your life. Yeah. It's like why – it is so interesting. I Like you, I don't know much about turkey hunting other than just the basics that have allowed me to kill turkeys. But it's like what are the factors that cause turkeys to just gobble like crazy one day and then the next day completely be shut down? You know, I, I can't yeah. wrap my head around it, but they're just like a switch. That's, yeah, I don't know. Probably the same – the same uh, indicators that influence deer movement, right? Probably yeah. uh, weather, probably where are the hens, probably pressure, probably, I don't know. I, I've heard that um, birds are affected more through electromagnetic forces um, and like, uh, like barometric pressure. That's not an electromagnetic force, but um, birds are affected more by those kind of things than mammals are. Hmm. So who knows? Interesting. 
one of these days, maybe we should get someone who actually knows about turkeys to come talk to us about this stuff. <laughs> right, right. And, can, that, and that brings me to my next point. Don't, don't quote anything that we say <laughs> on this podcast because there's a 90% chance it's just bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> we, we can talk with relative authority about deer, but when it comes to turkeys, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, although to be fair, you and me both, I think we've killed a turkey or more than a, or a turkey or two every year for a long time now. So, I mean, we're, we're, we, we know enough to get the job done. So, right. There's, yeah. Last couple of years, last couple of years, I haven't shot a turkey just because I went out with other people and tried to get them one. But, uh, I'm to that point now. And we talk about it, about whitetails, you know, there's certain, you, you reach certain points in every hunting, I guess, adventure that you're on. And for me with turkeys, I've killed enough turkeys that, uh, yeah, I still like going out and hunting them myself, but I find a lot of enjoyment right now, uh, taking others, and, yeah. you know, falling for people. Yeah. Being a turkey guide is a lot of fun. I know I mentioned it last year, but like last year was one of my favorite turkey seasons because I was able to be on, I think it was last year, maybe it was the year before, I don't know. Um, but I was involved in five or six different successful turkey hunts. So I got to be like the guide and, and caller on five or six hunts. And that was pretty sweet. Two of them were mine. Well, one of them was mine. Two, two of them were mine. I don't know. And then I took my dad out, took my buddy out, took my buddy out in Ohio, took another friend in Michigan. And, uh, dude, there's nothing like calling in a turkey and having it happen. Yeah. yeah. It's sweet. My favorite, my, the absolute favorite part of turkey hunting, and it is a scenario similar to this, right, where you're in the woods, and let's say you're not using a blind, okay? I, I'm, I'm trying to sneak up on this gobbler who I've located. I put my decoys out. I sit down, and uh, I'm calling, and he's reacting, and he's reacting, and, and I know he's going to come up, and he, hell, he may be there. And then all of a sudden behind me I hear boom, boom, <laughs> you know? That, yeah. that Tom, that's, there's another Tom who came in dead silent right behind me. And I can hear him strutting, you know, he's dragging his wingtips in the leaves and he's, you know, that, how they stop, they strut and then they go, and then they stop. Uh, if you could see me right now, I'm looking at a reflection in a window. I'm acting like a turkey walking back and forth in this room, but. <laughs> I hope your coworkers but, can't see you right now. <laughs> no, nobody can. Okay. But. But uh, when they do that and you can hear it behind, oh man, that's just like one of the biggest rushes ever. Yeah, I feel like I feel like you've told that story before on a past turkey on episode because I remember you making. Oh, that, yeah. I remember you making that thumb noise. Yeah, it's so awesome. I love it. It's so awesome. I'm jealous. You're gonna be chasing them tomorrow. Man, I tell you what though, where you're gonna be in ten days, I. My goal, this is kind of like a bucket list thing, is to get a Merriam, a Rio, and a um, Osceola down south. You know, I, I want to do the the Grand Slam. The Slam, that would be sweet. Yeah. yeah, I am excited to see some different turkeys and, and, and kill one of these mountain gobblers. That'll be, that, even if I don't kill one, I'm just excited to see them and hear them and be out in that terrain. I mean, 
being in mountainous or badlands type ter- territory and seeing turkeys oh, yeah. and chasing turkeys in that kind of setting, that's I'm pretty stoked about that. So, are you so, are you running solo or are you going to be going with somebody? You know, I, I'm I've got two different friends who have offered to to go out with me and take me out in some areas they know of or just go tag along for fun. So probably will be a couple friends, um, but not sure. Uh, that's kind of up gotcha. in the air, just depending on schedule and stuff. So. All right, real quick before we move on, though, I want to pause to thank our partners at Sitka Gear for their support of the Wired Hunt podcast. But rather than sharing Sitka's story today, I want to make a quick plug for Sitka's Instagram account. You know, regardless of whether you're ever going to buy or wear Sitka Gear, I think anyone not following Sitka on Instagram is missing out. They just have some of the absolute coolest photography and stories being shared there. And it's the kind of stuff that just pulls you out of the doldrums of the workday and transports you into the field, sitting high in a tree stand, breathing in that icy air, or takes you out into the field where you're soaking in the last rays of sun setting behind the mountains. You know, when a photo can do that, it's pretty special. And Sitka's Instagram account is jam-packed with just that kind of imagery. So head on over to Instagram and follow Sitka Gear. Their handle is at Sitka Gear. That's one word. So check it out. I promise you won't be disappointed. And now, back to our conversation. So do you, do you want to hear about what I've been doing the last 10 days. I've got some interesting stories. <laughs> well, yes, I do, because when I text you, or you text me, hey, Dan, we can't record the podcast at the normal time. I'm like, so what's wrong? And you're just like, <laughs> it's just it's like, it's not working out right now. <laughs> I read your text. It was a text, but I just imagined you like, you know how sometimes when kids get mad or they're upset and they like, put their hands in their pockets and they kick rocks and they just, oh, that just stuck so much. I, I just imagined you doing that. That's basically what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> so what's up? What happened? Okay. So there's been a lot of good stuff and there's been a few not so good things too. Um, so I'll kind of walk you through what's been happening here and you can feel free to press me on anything that's of interest. Um, but so, you know, the plan here, this, this trip is take about five weeks and explore Utah, Wyoming, and Montana, all public land stuff. And um, as we've talked about, I'm working on this project, and I'll talk about it a little more later maybe, but I'm working on a project where I'm kind of uh, diving into the history of our public lands and then into this whole current threat to our public lands with the public land transfer movement that we've talked about in the past. Um, So one of the places where I wanted to go and explore more was Utah, because Utah, you know, is kind of a hotbed for this issue. So the plan was to drive out there with this camper we bought in the fall that we renovated. And, man, I haven't even talked about that on a whole lot about that. But, like, <laughs> geez, that was a project and a half. Replaced the roof. And for, like, the like the two weeks before we left, um, it was, like, every single day we went to my father-in-law's house where we had the, the camper in a barn to work on it in the rain and stuff. And holy crap. I mean so much it worms yeah it was like every every day there was something new popping up and but it's done um the issue yeah. is that new things have been popping up now that we've been going and um, but long story short we drove out to utah and it was the first time i ever like pulled a camper before i've never had a camper i never pulled a camper um so like on our second day of the drive well number one my mileage is like horrible so i went from getting like 20 miles per gallon with my truck to now like eight or nine um, so <laughs> it's getting a little more expensive than I was expecting. And then I don't know if it's because of the size of the camper. It's small and it's light, relatively small and light, but 
the wind just does a number on the sucker. Oh, yeah. So when we got into, like, Oklahoma on the second day, we had, like, 30-mile-an-hour winds and bigger gusts. And I just thought, like, every minute I thought I was going to get thrown off the road. Like, I was white-knuckling. My back was soaked in sweat. I'm, like, gritting my teeth. cussing the whole way at one point we had to stop and pull over in a walmart parking lot and just hang out for like four hours because like screw this i'm not i'm not driving this shit anymore so right so that was the drive out and um we finally made it, it took us four days to get to where we were trying to go in utah because you also have to just drive a lot slower pulling this thing and but we get to moab um which is where there's just tons and tons of public land there there's arches national park canyonlands national park um the new the new bears ears national monument which is just south of there and um we were planning on you know camping out in some blm land there and then hiking around and doing some different things maybe do a float down the colorado river we pull into town though and it is like packed 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 way way more than i'd ever seen and there's jeeps everywhere huge jacked up jeeps with big tires and i mean like everywhere the streets are just flooded with them (laughs) and i'm like what is going on look is there something going on online and we looked online and it's like the annual jeep safari convention thing of the nation was happening in moab this week um so there was just thousands and thousands of thousands of people with all their off-road vehicles just packed every campsite all the public land was covered with this stuff town was packed i mean it was it was a lot of stuff going on. So we had a hell of a time trying to find a campsite. Um, we drove all over the place, and, like, I had drove up this one, like, weird hairpinned road, and I'm trying to haul the trailer up this, like, 10% grade, and I'm like, holy shit, we're going to start rolling backwards. My truck can't handle this. <laughs> so, like, all that kind of stuff just led to really stress me out. We finally found a spot to camp, but it was, like, a shared campsite, and it was the only spot we could find. So it was, like, us and a very nice russian couple and their daughter um but like their (laughs) their tent and like their fire pit was like four feet away from ours so if we want to sit at our table and have a fire it was basically with them so it wasn't ideal um but basically we we hung out there for a few days did a couple cool hikes a really cool place that if anyone's ever out there in moab that you should check out is the fisher towers um they are these just massive i guess it's sandstone um just formations coming off of these cliff walls and it's absolutely gorgeous really cool it's on blm land so it's public land it's free to get to there's a free campground right there um very very cool did that we did some hiking in arches national park that was cool um but it was super hot during the day and we didn't have a power hookup for the uh camper so our dogs were stuck in the trailer um and we just couldn't stay there very long because of how hot it was. So right. we decided to head out to another part of Utah. And, oh, we thought we'd go to this area around Capitol Reef National Park, which is west of there. And that ended up being a debacle, but I'll kind of skim over that. I couldn't find anywhere to camp again. Too hot again. Me and the wife were arguing the whole time. Um, but we make it finally after all sorts of like indecision and parking the truck and like no let's just screw utah we're going up to wyoming and then kylie's like well it's gonna be really cold in wyoming i don't want to be freezing it's like fine we'll stay in utah and then she's like no but we can't do anything in utah so i'm like well screw it we're going to wyoming and like we 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 got on and off exits like four different times turning around and going back then turning around and it was just one of those like husband wife type situations that's (laughs) (laughs) 
So basically what, what you w- went through is like what I call a Tuesday at my house. Yeah. <laughs> I had a Dan Johnson Tuesday. Um, but <laughs> Pretty standard. We finally found – we ended up finding a spot in Utah that was agreeable to both of us and relatively warm. It was in the – I don't even know how to say this. The Uinta National Forest, I think. Um, and we found a really cool spot, and it got a nice campground, campsite, and it was actually free because the campsites weren't open yet. And there was a place to get the camper. And I'm like, oh, I had a deep sigh of relief. Everything's okay, finally. We've got a spot. And then I walk around the camper as we're setting it up, and I see fluid leaking out of the back of our camper into our oh boy. campsite. I'm like, what is this? I get down my hands and knees, and immediately I can smell it. It's the sewage and urine leaking out of our sewage tank on the camper. Uh. So... I get down underneath there, and I'm looking around, and I see there's this big pipe that comes out of what's called the black tank, which is like the sewer tank. And yep. I'm looking down there, and I see there's like a steady stream of juice coming out of the seam in this pipe. And you know me. I don't know how to fix anything. I'm not handy. <laughs> <laughs> so my, I'm like, my first gut reaction was, okay, do we have duct tape? So I get duct tape down there, and I'm trying to duct tape over the pipe and I'm getting piss all over me and it's leaking and rolling down my side and Kylie's standing over there trying to tell me what to do and I'm down here getting covered in piss and trying to fix this thing and I'm getting upset and that didn't go well. I ended up having to drive back into town and go to a plumbing supply store and I got this kind of self-adhering plumber's tape and that kind of worked a little bit but um, we still have a leaking pisser. It's just slowed down now so that's that's one debacle. Um, we did have a nice time though in that national forest. We stayed there three days. One day we just went hiking through the national forest, just roaming around the hills and stuff. Saw a lot of deer, just beautiful, beautiful country. It's kind of a mix of like desert ish landscape mixed with like big mountains though around it. So it was like kind of sagebrush and stuff on the hills, but like red clay sand and, um, gorgeous. We hiked to like a hot spring one day and got to like sit in like a natural hot tub kind of out there, which was cool. Um, so that was nice, but finally we decided to go to Wyoming, and this is where my, I think my favorite story of the whole trip comes in here. You're going to enjoy this one. So we leave Utah. We're heading for Wyoming, and we're like, all right, you know, we know Wyoming really well. We know the area around Jackson and Grand Teton. We've spent a lot of time here, so I'm like, all right, we're going to get there, and it's, we're finally going to be relaxed. We'll set up camp. I know exactly the campground I want to go to. It's a great location. We can hook up to sewage, and we can get power and just kind of, you know, settle back in, do work. That's where I thought I'd be able to record the podcast and just, like, kind of settle in for, like, two weeks maybe. Well, I had not done thorough planning for this trip, I guess, because I was so caught up with trying to get the camper renovated and everything. I didn't bother to check on anything, campgrounds or whatnot. So we start looking into it, and all the campgrounds that we were going to stay at are all closed still. So to fix our leaking pipe, though, I have to empty the sewage tank completely to work so it'll dry off. And once that piping dries off, once it stops leaking, then I can actually put a permanent fix to it. So I'm like, all right, we need to drain the tank somewhere. But all the campgrounds that have sewage hookups, they're all closed. So the only thing we knew of is that some truck stops have dump stations at them where you can pay to dump your sewage tank at this thing. Well, I've never done that before. And I've only ever dumped our sewage tank once before. This was five days previous at the very first campground we stayed at. Um, so I don't know what I'm doing. No one's ever told me how to do this. I've just, like, kind of, I don't know, looked online. 
So we go to this dump station. We pull up to it. I walk in there. I talk to the people, buy the thing, and ask them how to use it. And they're like, I don't know. Just enter this code and, and dump your tank. And I'm like, oh, okay. I guess I'll figure it out. So I go over to the dump station. Kylie had to take a conference call for work. So she's sitting in the trailer on a conference call with her employer. I'm outside standing next to the sewage tank looking at this hose that comes from the tank to, I don't know, there's a little, like, I don't know how to describe it, just a little keypad, and it says, enter key code, enter, put hose in hole, dump. But I can't find a hole. There's, there's, I don't see the dump hole. There's, like, a pipe that looks like a big PVC pipe sticking out of the ground, and then there's, I don't know, there's this metal thing that looks like a foot pedal, and I'm hitting the foot pedal, and the foot pedal doesn't do anything, and I'm looking around for holes, and I see, like, I don't know, I'm looking at everything, trying to figure out where the hell do I put the sewage tank hose. I can't figure it out. So finally, I see this pipe, and I'm like, well, that's got to be it. That's the only thing that looks like I could dump this in. But it's, like, got a, a, a hose clamp over it, so it's, like, not easy to get off. So I have to use pliers to yank off this rubber lid over this pipe. I'm like, all right, this has got to be it. So I yank. I finally get this thing off, and... I want to try to dump the tank. In order to dump the tank, you got to hold the hose with one hand, and then you got to pull this, um, I don't know what you call it. You pull this kind of uh, lever or handle. You pull this handle out, and it opens the floodgates, and then the tank dumps out. Well, I can't reach right. I can't reach that handle while also holding in this pipe. So I have to go in and bug Kylie. She's on a phone call. I'm like, I need your help. Get out here. So she's on the phone with one hand, and she walks over, and I say, okay, when I put this – hose in the hole you pull that handle so i say go she pulls the handle well this was not the right hole for me to be dumping the dump tank into (laughs) so i I don't i don't have common sense so i didn't really think about the fact that the sewage tank like our tank is at a lower level than the pipe that i'm trying to stick the hose in so gravity was pulling the sewage out of our tank into the pipe but then it wouldn't force the sewage up the hill to the pipe where I'm at. So when we open that handle, all the crap and piss comes flooding into the hose but can't go up into the pipe where I'm at. So unbeknownst to me, there's holes in our hose, and there's not a good seal between our tank and the hose. So crap and piss starts skewering all out of the hose, all around me and Kylie, into the parking lot, all around us. I panic. I'm like, turn it off, shut it off, shut it off. There's piss streaming everywhere. Kylie's on a conference call. She slams the handle down. The hose is full of sewage now. I don't know what to do. And then I step backwards, and I happen to step on that foot pedal, and that opens up a hole. I'm like, oh, that's where I was supposed to put this stuff. (laughs) So now I'm like, what do we do? We've got feces streaming down the truck stop parking lot. I can't reach the hose to the proper hole. So I'm like, Kylie, hold the hose, hold the hose. She's on the conference call trying to talk about business stuff. She grabs hold of the crap hose. I jump in the truck. I have to back the truck and the camper up like three, four feet to the proper hole. Stuff streaming around all over the place. I'm looking around like, oh, my gosh, are people seeing this? I finally get the hose in the right hole, but I can't get still gravity's working against me. So I have to disconnect the crapper hose from our camper with stuff streaming out, hold it in my hands and lift it up above my head so that gravity will now shift it all down into the hole. 
that results in just more stuff all over the place. We did get it somewhat drained, but absolutely mortifying situation with a week's worth of stuff streaming all over the place. I'm like, all right, jump in the camper or jump in the truck. We got to get out of here. <laughs> yeah. And, well, uh, I'll tell you what. And we, if we, I saw that, I probably wouldn't have helped you. I probably would have just <laughs> sat back and looked at you and laughed. Yeah. So this is what happened when we were supposed to be recording the podcast. That was that day. <laughs> and we we ended up, you know, that was a situation, but we got it dealt with and, and kind of cleaned up. And uh, and then we got to Jackson Hole where we thought we were going to stay. But like I said, these campgrounds were closed. And we ended up driving around for like three or four hours all over the place, trying to find somewhere we could stay. There was no national park campgrounds open. There was no national forest campgrounds open. Most of the national forest roads were closed, so we couldn't even get to a spot where we could pull off and camp, and there weren't even any private campgrounds open. So we spent the whole damn day driving around, ended up finding one place open, but they charged us $70 a night to stay there. And uh, so we got set up, though, that night, and then the next day, kind of by luck, we did an, I did a bunch of looking online just trying to find, like, if there's anyone in a forum that knew of another place. Or we just started looking at different maps. And we just hadn't looked in this one region before where there actually were a couple national forest roads. And there was one national forest road that went in there a little bit before it closed. And we actually got to it and actually found a spot to put our camper. And that's where we're at now. It's actually really cool. It's a great spot. It's free. It's in the Bridger Teton National Forest looking over the valley towards the Grand Teton, so it's awesome. Um, but, man, it took us a lot of stress to get to this point. And, like, every time we want to drive down a sketchy-looking road, I'm afraid to drive my camper down some of these forest roads because, like, they could be closed down there. There's nowhere to turn. There's not pull-offs or anything. I mean, it's just sketchy up here. Right. It's lots of snow and mud everywhere still. So, like, we have to take the camper off, unhitch the camper, leave it somewhere, then drive around, then come back, rehitch the whole damn thing, then drive around. So it's just yeah. been one of those things, man. But um, but now I think, knock on wood, we're, we're finally in a good spot. And uh, whew, it's been a lot of lessons learned. I mean, we, I learned how to properly dump the tank now. I've learned how to fix pipes a little bit. Um, we've lost a number of different things, like different caps, different pieces and parts of the camper have flown off. Um, it's been one of those kinds of trips. So that's where we're at right now. I tell you, that that all still sounds fun. I mean, (laughs) the good, the good thing about this is, I mean, it's an adventure, right? I mean, you know, someday you're going to have kids probably, and you're going to be sitting at home and you're going to be like, Hey, let me tell you the time that, uh, I got uh, feces all over my entire body, <laughs> and your, so did your mom because we didn't know what the hell we were doing. Yeah, it, it's it'll be a good story, that's for sure. <laughs> I uh, I'm I'm glad it's behind me, and hopefully that never happens again. But uh, I, what is that? Yeah. Type type two fun, I guess. Right? It's it's not much fun in the that's moment, right. but it's great fun afterwards. And uh, and yeah, now stuff's good. We um we had a really cool hike yesterday. We snowshoed up to the top of this mountain called Signal Mountain. That was fun. We've seen tons of elk everywhere, moose and deer. And yesterday, I actually saw a ginormous grizzly bear, which was really cool. Dude, I saw that. I saw that. I was yeah. jealous. I was hoping it would like come a little bit closer to your camper <laughs> and like put a giant claw mark in it, and then that would be with you the rest of the 
trip. That would actually be cool. I'd be okay with that. Um, yeah. <laughs> where, where we're camped, though, like literally it could happen. Like we're, we're completely by ourselves way back in this national forest in really like some serious grizzly territory. So like every morning, every night, I'm kind of just always looking around, hoping to see a wolf or a bear. Or... We had eight bull elk come right by our camper yesterday morning. That was pretty sweet. Um, awesome. Got to watch them for like an hour. And, um, and yeah, lots, lots of wildlife right now. Do you remember when we went into, um, into that, into that valley, you know, after our elk hunt and we drove by the national elk wildlife refuge? Do you remember that? Uh, yes, I think so. Was that on our way out of there? It was when we went and got dinner at the pizza place, went to Dornan's. Didn't we get Dorn? Didn't we go to Dornan's? No, we went, uh, we went to the bird. Got a, the bird. Yeah. Yeah, well... But it was real foggy. We couldn't yeah. see. Okay, I forgot about that. Well, basically, there's this area of this valley. It's called the Elk Refuge, and it's basically all the elk, or many of the elk from the Yellowstone area in the mountains and from the Teton area and from these national forests around there, um, the Bridger Teton National Forest and some of these other spots. They all kind of winter down in this valley. A lot of them do. And there's still... I would say there's probably still thousands of elk all strewn across the valley. It's everywhere you drive. You're seeing herds of 200, 300, 400 elk just oh, everywhere. Wow. It is it is pretty remarkable. And um, Are they still carrying antlers? You know, some are. Some are still carrying antlers. Some are shed. There's some that are already growing big new velvet antlers, um, which is yeah, kind of wild. So I'll tell you what, despite all the, the debacles of the trip, and there's been a whole bunch that aren't necessarily story-worthy, but all these little things have just made it stressful – to your point, like it is, I'm constantly like marveling at how incredible it is that this is our land. Like all these places, yeah. it's public land. It's it's yours. It's mine. It's it's everyone out here. We can all use it, um, and in different ways too. That was one of the cool things while I was in Utah, is that, you know, I think the biggest takeaway from my time in Utah is is the diversity of Utah, the diversity of terrain. I mean, you can be in these red rock canyons with towers and arches and crazy stuff. And then you can be in like pure desolate desert. And then you can be in like gorgeous pine covered mountains and snowy peaks. I mean, tremendous diversity in terrain. And then also tremendous diversity in how people use that public land. I mean, there's a massive amount of public land in Utah and all sorts of people are using it. I mean, you've got the climbers and like mountain bikers and you got that type. But then you also have, you know, ranchers that are running their cattle, and you've also got guys that are driving their ATVs and their Jeeps and their dirt bikes and everything. And you've got liberals and conservatives. You've got hunters, and you've got crunchies, and you've got climbers, and you've got hikers. I mean, every different sort of person is out there finding benefit from these lands. And I think that was, like, really eye-opening to me. You know, public lands aren't just for hunters. They're not just for yuppies who want to climb or hike. They're not just for guys who want to run cattle. You know, they're, that's what's so cool about a lot of these public places is multiple use. It's for a lot of different things. And, and to one of the interesting issues about this public land transfer movement that we've been talking about and seeing happen is that that's why that is, isn't what some people want. Some people want to just use these public lands for the one thing they want, and they're not okay with the fact that these places are managed for multiple things. And, um, and that's interestingly caused the same type of issue over a long time. You know, as I've been working on this project, I've been studying the history of how, you know, how America came to have all these public lands, and it's, it's actually been kind of a thing. This thing, this land transfer movement, has been popping up almost in the same type of way several different times over the years. Um, and it's almost the exact same issue. You know, it's um, 
you know, back in the 40s, this popped up when there first started being some regulations on the rangelands, you know, lands that are now called BLM lands, Bureau of Land Management. Mm -hmm. When regulations were first put on those with the Taylor Grazing Act back in 1932 or 34, I think it was, that kind of, after a series of years where these regulations started taking place, where they're trying to conserve, trying to make sure they weren't overgrazing, and this is like, you know, just after the Dust Bowl and all that kind of stuff. Um, right. There was like a revolt from some of the user base of the public lands, a lot of the ranchers and um, that kind of stuff going on. They didn't like the fact that the government was trying to regulate what they were doing there. And they said, we want these lands. They belong to us. They should be private. They should be, you know, given back to the counties, different stuff like that. So that happened in the 40s, but that was shut down. Then again, the exact same thing happened in the 80s. Same type of deal with the Sagebrush Rebellion. You know, there was all these new regulations. And, you know, I think regulations gets a, it's a dirty word sometimes. Um, but there's lots of what I think are, are necessary regulations. And there were a lot of things put in place in the seventies, you know, when a lot of these different environmental reforms are put in place to you know, make sure we've got clean air, clean water. Um, you know, the wilderness preservation system was created then in the sixties. So all these different things happened, which were allowing for our public lands to be managed, not just for one use being, you know, uh, energy extraction or resource exploitation, but also managed for, conservation, wildlife, recreation, you know, multiple things. And again, when that started happening, people started throwing a fit, and that's when you got the Sagebrush Rebellion in the 80s. And then again, it popped up again in the 90s a little bit with, like, Clive and Bundy, and some of those guys started throwing some of their fits. And now here we are in the 2015, 16, 17, same type of deal. People don't like the fact that, they're, you know, that there are some of these different regulations on this public land, and it's this reoccurring thing, but I think... I don't know. The more you know, the more you experience these places, I think you start to understand that these public land issues, they're they're always going to be there because these these lands are, there are they're everyone's land, right? It's not just for yeah. miners. It's not just for hunters. It's not just for ranchers. It's not just for hikers. Um, these, you know, like Teddy Roosevelt talked about. You know, these lands should be managed for perpetuity for people now, but then also people still within the womb of time. Um, and that's what's so cool about it, I think, is that, you know, as challenging as some of these management um, debates are and figuring out what to do with these lands and stuff, I think the fact that there's a system in place to protect these places for the long term and make sure we can all keep using them in all these different ways, but for the long term. Um, right. There's not right. many places left in the world where there is land like this available to everybody to use and to experience and to see wild animals and go to wild places. I mean, it's just a, it's an endangered resource. And, uh, man, just being out here, I'm always reminded of how just what a gift it is that we have this place. Well, I tell you, the cool thing is, um, and like you kind of mentioned, I agree with you when you say sometimes the word regulation is kind of a bad word, but... It's kind of the way humans operate, that if there were not regulations, there would be one person who spoils it for everybody, right. who takes, takes advantage of a situation. So in order for that to not happen again, certain regulations have to be put into place, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, a hunter can only take this many animals off of a particular part of property or, you know, uh, there can only be this many head of cattle or you can, you only have access to this many acres for grazing or mining rights and, and all that stuff. Cause like you said, 
it's you have to share, but the, the it's a kind of a, in a way it's a forced share because a lot of people have to shake hands at the end of the day and say, okay, well, yeah, we'll take this or this, you can take that, and we'll you know, you know, public means sharing. Yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right, and it's. Yeah, it's 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 never going to be easy. It's never going to be what everybody wants in most cases. But to your to your point, you know, some type of regulation is necessary in order to maintain, you know, to make sure not one person ruins it for everybody, like you said. And, uh, you know, if you look at what was happening in the late 1800s, when there weren't regulations, all this, it was just a massive free for all. And we know what happened. I mean, almost all of our wildlife populations were just decimated. I mean, yeah. forests were teared to the ground. I mean, stuff was getting mined up like crazy. I mean, the the destruction of what we have now was was rampant. And finally, people like Teddy Roosevelt, Gifford Pinchot, um, some of these different people realized, hey, we need to manage these things a little bit better for the long term. We need to protect a few of these places because if it's all free for all, if it's all privatized, there won't be anything left. Because in the in the long run, people usually are looking out for themselves and to the exclusion of everybody else and to the exclusion of the future. And uh, if you don't have some type of thoughtful long-term plan in place, there's not going to be a long-term future. So that's right. I sure am glad now, that people, people had the foresight. Right. Exactly. You know, true uh, innovators, if yeah. you want to put it that way. Absolutely. All right, real quick now, we're going to take a brief break for a word from our partners at Whitetail Properties. So here's producer Spencer Newharth. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Jake Elinger, a land specialist out of southern Michigan. And Jake is going to be telling us about the most important factors to consider when looking to buy a property. There's a couple of items that I think are often overlooked because it's real easy to get uh, caught up in all the details of, you know, the rolling hills and owning land. But uh, number one on my list would be soil. You know, quality soil is going to produce quality forage and quality deer. And it's going to make uh, your life trying to plant food plots and destination food a lot easier if you've got good soil. But along with that would be a, a nice mix of preferably a stream or wetland swamp so you have some water and ideally some ag land either associated fairly closely or on that property, some tillable, and then some good cover. Uh, you know, so I, I, I refer to that as the magic triangle, food, water, and cover. And if you can find a small parcel with those three elements and some good soil, you've got a great hunting property ahead of you. If you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that Jake currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash elinger. That's E-H-L-I-N-G-E-R. And now, back to the show. Now, you mentioned something about a, a recent big win for public lands. Uh, well, there's a handful of different things that have been going on that we haven't really talked about um, here on the podcast that I thought we could touch on. There's a, yeah. a bunch of different things. So I think the last time we really talked about this was back when the whole H.R. 621 deal was making you know waves and i know you were well versed on that but that was um this proposal to sell 3.3 million acres i think or 3.1 million acres of public land um and that got because of people like you and our listeners and you know the 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 outdoor community this massive 
massive um, onslaught of, of opinion and comments and emails and phone calls. Jason Chavez, the congressman who proposed that, had to pull that back. Um, so that was a big win. Since then, though, um, you know, he still has that other bill he introduced, H.R. 622, which proposed removing the law enforcement function of the Forest Service and the BLM. And I think that's, that's a very bad idea, is that would, you know, basically put these millions and millions and millions of acres of public land without, you know, anyone there to enforce regulations there. I mean, the local sheriff office, the county sheriff and stuff, they don't have the time or the means to be able to manage these places too. So that's a horrible idea as far as everyone I've talked to um, understands it. That's still out there. Um, interesting news, though, is that Chavez just announced he's not going to be seeking re-election in the next election cycle. So that's kind of a win because he's been pretty anti-public land in a lot of things he's proposed. Um, But Wyoming recently, some of the congressmen of Wyoming have mentioned that they are not going to be seeking any more land transfer legislation. That's a good thing. Um, So that's a win there. Uh, In Utah, some interesting stuff has happened. You know, during this whole 622 rush of news we also started hearing some news from the outdoor kind of the non-consumptive outdoor community you know hiking climbing backpacking all that yep. kind of stuff and there's this big convention called the outdoor retailer convention have you heard about this yep yep um and so basically some companies there that are in this industry started saying hey utah you guys are trying to transfer the public lands you're trying to get rid of some of our national monuments you're proposing all this crazy stuff that is very anti-public land and anti outdoor recreation and the outdoor recreation community whether that be hiking biking rafting climbing hunting and fishing it is a massive part of the economy in utah so why are you trying to get rid of all the land that allows all these people to do these things and long story short after talking about boycotting this big huge convention it's like the ata or shot show but it's it's for this other side of the outdoor industry um they ended up just completely deciding that they're going to leave Utah completely because the governor and different people within the um, legislative um, arms in Utah there are just, they're not backing off on this kind of stuff. So the outdoor retailer convention is out of Utah starting in 2019, which is, which is a pretty big statement. I think on that part that I think gives Utah a, uh, a nasty dose of, of, uh, I don't know. They got what was coming. I suppose when they see that if they're going to, you know, if they're going to do this, propose this crazy stuff that's so anti-public land, anti-all of us, um, this is what happens. So that was interesting. Did some of those companies also say that, you know, they said, well, hey, we're going to pull this retailer show out of Utah. But some of the other companies, correct me if I'm wrong, like an REI, right? Um, they've been a voice, I think, in the public land thing, too. Mm-hmm. Did, some of these, did some of these companies say that, hey, uh, if you don't shut down this public land transfer talk, we're pulling our business out of Utah altogether. You know, I'm not sure about that part. I that's possible, and that would be a huge. That'd be another huge uh, economical kick in the butt. Oh yeah, heck yeah. I mean, this it's such a huge part of Utah's economy. I don't know the actual numbers, but I'm sure it's a major, major driver. I mean, if you look at all these states, these western states the tourism industry has been a growing portion of their economy and is overtaking most different extractive industry parcels of the economy. And I think it's, it's becoming more and more important. And I don't know if you start, if you start taking away those opportunities, 
the future for these states does not look good economically. So I think what's happening in Utah is indicative of what could happen in other states. And I think, I hope other states will take note of that. And I think maybe, you know, you're seeing like in Wyoming, some of these people are taking note. They've heard the call from hunters and anglers and other outdoor recreators like that this is not acceptable. And they're, you know, they're backing off on this stuff. So, so that's a good thing. Um, I just hope that the the politicians don't try because typically what happens is, all right, they'll propose a law, right? And with this HR 21 or 22, whatever it was, uh, we, the hunters, the outdoors groups, they, they really got behind each other and they, they got it to the point where, okay, we're going to, we're taking this bill off the table because obviously it's very unpopular with the people who actually use this land. Now, what typically happens in this day and age is, the people who all of a sudden were really, really motivated about this, they, they turned their back to the issue or they, there's something else pops up or, you know what I mean? And then it, it loses a little bit, it it loses its traction. And then the next thing you know, that's to me, it sounds like that's again, when the politicians come in with a new bill and say, Hey, we're going to do this shit under their, under everybody's nose, Mm -hmm. try to get it passed. And you know, that's where it's, the way I see it is that's why it's very important to continue to be involved with like um, the uh, Theodore Roosevelt was at uh, conservation partnership. Or, yep. That one, uh, the keep it public. Um, they have an organization movement, you know, stay involved with these, these things. If, if you're an advocate of these um, of this, keep it public movement to, to, continue to stay involved as much as you possibly can and, and be knowledgeable of everything that's going on because as history will teach us this stuff doesn't stop yeah it continues to come and until the next you know big lobbyist comes in and pressures i don't want to say pressured but tells a uh, uh a politician hey we'll give you this much money if you uh, propose this bill and some greedy bastard always does it right yeah no, you're you're spot on. This is definitely something that we can't we can't lose sight of it. We can't become apathetic to it because yeah, as soon as public interest isn't there or as soon as the loud crowds aren't there, that's when the politicians make the move again. And I think you know what comes this kind of stuff, you know, there's all these different battles for the future of, you know, wildlife or conservation or public land. And you know, whoever it is that wants to take advantage of these places, whether it be a business or industry, politicians, whatever, they keep fighting these battles, right? And if they lose, well, it's on to the next one. Or they wait a year and they try again or they whatever. They switch things up. They change the the verbiage a little bit and try again. So if they lose one of these battles like they just lost this HR 622 or 621 battle, you know, that's okay. They'll try again, like you said, next year when people aren't paying attention to it. But if we, the people who value wildlife or public land or whatever it is, if you lose one of these battles, that's that's for good. You lose that land for good, or you lose that wildlife population for good. You know, we, if we lose a battle, that's it. Um, so we really need to be on top of these things and um, and make sure we leave this this resource, this place, these lands, these animals. We have to leave it better, or at least as well as we have it now, because I want to make sure that our kids, your kids, you know, can go out and do these things. They can go and camp somewhere. They can go on an elk hunt, or they can deer hunt in the Manistee National Forest, or the Huron National Forest, um, man, it's just, it's scary to think that these places could be up for grabs. And, um, 
Yeah. I sure hope it doesn't happen. I mean, here's a here's a perfect example. When we've talked about this in the past when explaining what this whole public land transfer movement is, but basically people are this this group of politicians um, are proposing to take federal public lands and transfer them to states. And they're saying that states can manage it better, blah, blah, blah. But in reality, what we've seen is that when it goes to state control, it's easier for resource extraction. It's easier for stuff to be sold and privatized and all that kind of stuff. Well, recently in Oregon, there's an example of this happening right now. There's a state force, the Elliott State Forest, that has not been able to be profitable. So basically these public lands, when states have public lands, state lands there in these western states have to be managed for profit. They have to be managed to pay for their school systems and different things like that. Like it is mandated. So if these lands aren't if these lands aren't profitable, if they're not making money, so if they're not getting enough timber or mineral extraction or whatever off of that, they have to sell them. And so there is 82,000 acres in Oregon right now that is on the chopping block being sold. And they've been debating if it's going to be sold. There's a timber company that wants to buy it. And it's been going back and forth for a while now. Like last month, they the, there's a state land board, I think, that have to decide whether to sell it or not because it's not profitable right now. And two of the three people on that board voted to sell it. So it was going to be sold. And then there was a huge uprising and outcry from, you know, people that value that land for other reasons. And now maybe it's not going to be sold. But, I mean, that's a perfect example. 82,000 acres of public land that people have been hiking on, that people have been hunting on, that people have been enjoying. And that could be sold this year or next year. That could be gone. And that is what exactly could happen if states end up, if this whole land transfer thing happens. If they have to transfer the Bridger Teton National Forest, where I am right now, with thousands of elk and grizzly bears and mule deer, black bears, and turkeys, and all sorts of crazy stuff running around here. Unbelievable country. If that's transferred to the state, and if the state can't make money off of it, they're going to have to sell it. And then when I come back here four years from now, there's not going to be anywhere I can camp. There's nowhere I'm going to be able to sit in the morning and watch elk feed by. Um, There's there's not going to be anywhere you can take your kids someday to see these beautiful mountains and to experience what it's like not to be surrounded by concrete and buildings and businesses. Um, it's This stuff's happening, and if we don't do something about it, man, no good. No, not at all. Well, I tell you what, Mark, uh, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but my lunch break's over. I think uh, I think you've given us plenty of time, Dan. I appreciate you. Uh, <laughs> appreciate you sacrificing your few moments of, of rest and relaxation during the workday to uh, – to chat so well i tell you what you made me miss a meal and that's probably why i'm most pissed at you yeah <laughs> that's that should never be done i apologize <laughs> <laughs> well i appreciate it man good luck with the rest of the work day and um next time hopefully i'll have a few more interesting stories and uh, hopefully less crappy ones <laughs> you know what as much as you know as as many views as you take in in a day and this is me calling you out a little bit. I think you need to. I think you need to step up your Instagram game a little bit. Oh, I know. I you're take right. a picture because guys like me sitting in my cubicle all day need something to dream about. It's true. It's true. The Instagram game will be better because now I'm in an area okay. with service. The first like ten days okay. or so, I didn't have self service at all, so I was it was tough. But I'm gonna I'm gonna step it up. At Wired to Hunt on Instagram. You'll get to follow some of the exploits. I have been posting a lot to the stories. If you've been uh, checking out stories recently, yep. there's a lot there. So, yep. All right, buddy. Hey, take care, brother. Travel safe. Thanks, man.
All right, and with that, we are going to bring this episode to an end. So just a couple quick things. If you haven't left a rating review or for the podcast on iTunes, it'd be incredible if you could take a few seconds to do that. And finally, we also want to thank our partners who helped make this podcast possible. So big thanks to Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, Whitetail Institute of North America, Carbon Express, and Huntera Maps. And finally, thank you all. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to listen, to, to hear us kind of rant about different things and tell our crazy stories and occasionally hopefully share some interesting things. So thank you for your time. And I hope this got you fired up to maybe chase some of these different adventures out in public lands yourself. And in the meantime, I hope you'll stay wired to hunt. Hey, everybody knows Weber grills. I've been using Weber grills my whole life and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood pellet grill. Now with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. For three days only, save up to 30% off bestsellers from First Light, FHF Gear, Phelps Game Calls, and the Meat Eater Store. They'll also have for sale the Bear Grease Trucker Hats and Camo. They're included in this sale and all the great gear on First Light. Whether you're fishing, shed hunting, scouting, sighting in rifles, or cutting lanes, your gear needs to keep up with all your spring and summer pursuits. The sale has you covered. Hurry, the sale ends May 16th. Shop now at firstlight.com. F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E.com.